So you're writing for Ray Stevens in the mid-70s, and there's a bunch of songs that we can talk about in there that broke the top 100, but it wasn't until 77 with Way Down that you had your next number one on the country chart. Yes. By Elvis Presley. Yeah. Let's talk about that song. Yeah, well, that song was so interesting to me because I wrote it in a tiny office that Ray had given me, which didn't look like much to anybody except me, but it it literally had been a broom closet. It was a four-by-four room, and I had never had any little private place that was just mine. I would write in an empty room in his offices or somewhere, but it nothing that was dedicated to just me, and I could leave my things there or whatever. But one day I asked him if I could have this little broom closet for an office, and he said, sure, you want that? That tiny, yeah, I do. And then he built me a little shelf and I had a little recorder on it called Wollen Sack, which lots of people made lots of very successful demos on. It was a tiny little reel-to-reel tape player. And I went in there every single day, every single day, all day, and wrote songs. And I would just sing and play and stomp my feet. And I was literally 20 feet from Ray and about 10 feet from his secretary. And I just, at some point, I years later, I realized, how could they not have just said, stop, you're killing me. It's You're driving me nuts. You got to quit for at least an hour. They never did. And so it was quite close quarters. And I would just go in and just write a song, whether I felt like it or not. And I would collect song titles and write them on a napkin or piece of paper and stick them in my pocket. And periodically I would transcribe them into a notebook. When I was stuck for an idea, I would just flip through these notebooks. And I think Way Down may have come from something like that. I don't really remember the genesis of the title. But I remember writing the song and taking it into Ray. And and Ray said, I really like that. He said, yeah, let's, let's make a demo of it. There's nothing going on today. Let's call the band and make the demo. Well, we made this what I think of as a really wonderful, exciting demo. You know, he did the background part, which is way down, and his band played the rest, and I sang the lead part. And when it was finished, I just thought, well, you know, everyone in the world's going to want to record this. But nobody did. I played it for every single person who was even a vague contender in Nashville. Nobody even held it overnight. And then one day... I was out pitching my songs, which is what I did when I wasn't writing. And I sat next to this very famous publisher named Bob Beckham. He was one of the one or two very top publishers in Nashville. He knew every single person there was and had been around forever, even though he wasn't very old. Everyone knew he had a direct line to Elvis and that Elvis's record producer named Felton Jarvis was extraordinarily famous at the time and legendary, but no one ever saw him. He was just this incredible ghost rumor superstar. They knew that Felton Jarvis came to Bob Beckham's office every few weeks and picked up songs that were contenders for Elvis. And Bob Beckham said, hey, Lang, you work your ass off. Do you have anything for Elvis? If you do, bring it to me at 3 o'clock or whatever. At the time, you had to have a disc cut. You couldn't bring a tape. Elvis didn't listen to tapes, only discs. He'd put them on a little cheap record player in the studio, and if he liked it, you know, he'd, recorded and if he didn't he'd sometimes use it as a frisbee across you know room so i went and got a disc cut which i had to clear with ray because it wasn't cheap 
and I took it over to his office. And about a week later, Felton Jarvis, the producer, called Ray Stevens and said, Ray, Elvis is just going to go crazy for this song. He's going to love it. And I heard nothing for three or four months until I again on the street heard Elvis is looking for songs. And I thought, oh, God, you know, I'll take my song back to Bob Beckham. So got another disc cut, took it back. About 30 minutes later, Bob Beckham's secretary calls and says, Lang, I think Elvis has already recorded this song you just brought over. And I said, well, that's impossible. I, I would know. And she said, let me check. So a minute or two later, she calls and says, yeah, he recorded this in the jungle room, October, whatever day, 29, 30, something. It's done. That's impossible. I thought I jumped in my tragic little car with the, you know, no headliner, about five colors of paint on it, and a little Volkswagen. I drove home, told my wife that Elvis had recorded my song. Felton Jarvis called me up one day about a month later and said, I am over at Creative Workshop Recording Studio mixing your song. Mixing is when they put all the tracks together and make it sound like a record. He said, you want to come over and listen while we mix? And I said, absolutely. So I went over there and walked in the studio. And as I walk in the door, I hear, obviously, the introduction to my song. And I thought, God, this is unbelievable. And then I heard him start singing my song. This is just amazing. Of course, he wasn't there. I'm just hearing the recording. And I go in and Felton says, you just sit here. And he turns down the lights and he starts playing. He starts mixing the record. I just leaned back on that couch and I just thought of being in my mom's car when I was in seventh grade with my girlfriend the first time I heard Heartbreak Hotel and a switch had flipped in my heart and literally never went off. And I, now I'm 20 years later in a Nashville studio listening to Elvis sing my song. And I just thought, this is just impossible. But it happened. So I really like the chorus in this song. It's it's different, the way, especially the way it, winds itself up. I mean, I could feel it, feel it, feel it. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, and way down where the music plays. Way down, yeah. Yeah. Way down, like a tidal wave, way down where the fires blaze. Yeah. And then the way it ends. Yeah. Way down, down, way, way on down, yeah. It's because it doesn't, like, end in a rhyme. Well, it's got three rhymes, and, you know, way down where, you know, I can't even remember the words. Where the music plays... Like a tidal wave. Where the fires blaze, way down. Yeah, so three rhymes in a row and then way down. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's funny, the construction, how, how how it happens. You just don't, just you just kind of know if it doesn't feel right, but how it gets there is something else again. I guess the closest thing in, in writing songs is to music is, is just, you know, music is a heightened form of speech. A song is just a heightened form of speech, so... Way down, you know, it, it, I, I realized, that, like, that Way Down's a good example. I had three songs that I realized later were sort of forms of onomatopoeia, where it sounds like what it is, you know, words sounds like what it is. Way Down, and Rub It In, rub, kind of rubs, and then this other song called Wiggle Wiggle, which kind of wiggle, 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 it's kind of wiggled, you know? And I realized that, you know, that was a, a good example of of lyrics matching melody and, and helping to contribute to the message, you know, but I, it wasn't really intentional, but. I find the chorus is a big contrast to the verses. And in, in other words, Elvis is uh, pretty excited about a girl 
Yeah. In you know, in the <laughs> yeah. song. And yeah. then it's making him way down, which is kind of the opposite. I what 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 is in that? Well, the, the feeling is just way down deep inside of me is the drift of it, you know. That it's not down in the dumps, it's way down inside me. Yeah, right. Exactly. Where the music plays. Yeah. Like a tidal wave. The fires aren't really a cheeky fire. Sexual fires. Oh, okay, okay. Okay. <laughs> and just to be clear. A <laughs> hundred magic fingers. A yeah, hundred magic fingers on a swing. You have, have you ever been on those things in motels where you put it in a quarter and it shakes like that, you know? I've seen it in movies. Oh, yeah, and I, yeah. And, and I've, they I probably haven't been in don't hotel. have them anymore. I, I know. Probably. I know. So Unless it's a real old cheapy, maybe they would have it where it wiggly, still shimmies like that. It was like the... You know, now they have chair massagers. Yes, you know, exactly. The that, Brookstone chair the, the massager modern, yeah. is the modern version that's, of the of the, of the original Magic Fingers. Yep, yep. After a hard day of uh, of driving <laughs> truck a truck, a, truck, a yeah. truck, yeah. And so Elvis records this. Do you know that it's going to be the single that gets promoted to number one? Like, no, when do you? No, dis- it's an incredibly odd thing happened. Moody Blue which is the name of the album, had been a big hit single and had been number one. And out of the blue, this song, I think it's Let Me Be There, the old Olivia Newton-John song, which I, I believe was also on the album. At any rate, out of the blue, this friend calls me and said, hey, Lang, I just got a box of this new Elvis record. It's called Let Me Be There. And I thought, Really? I went over there and there it was printed on the RCA label and everything. But something had happened. Somebody had worked some political magic and gotten these records printed that wasn't the RCA single at all, but it was on the RCA label. And this guy is just some incredibly clever person had these things printed and had it shipped to the radio stations to look like the single, but it wasn't. And RCA knew that, but it suddenly had this problem. Everybody thinks that this is a single, and it, and it wasn't. Anyway. Huh. So it's like a bootleg. Yes. Perfect. The original bootleg. Yeah. That's a collector's item. That really would be. That would be. I probably had one at one point, <laughs> but no. But anyway, I don't know how they killed it or why it died or how it died. So my record was supposed to be the next single, and I had heard that, so to speak, on the street. So this thing interrupted that. But they did put it out in June, and it did go to number one. But the craziest part of it was we were in Rhode Island in the summer, and I was playing tennis, and I got a call at the tennis court from a friend who was also another record promoter. He was just a friend. I hadn't hired him. A record promoter's job is to get your song played on the radio. But he was in touch with billboard magazine so he called up and he said lang i just got the advance numbers for next week's billboard which are available usually on tuesday or something and your song way down is number one next week in billboard and i thought oh my god that is the greatest thing going because even though something is doing well you just never know if it'll get you know like i think it had been number two or close the previous week but you don't know so i thought oh my god it's just amazing and literally two days later i was on the same tennis court another phone call and it's from my lawyer in nashville and she said lang are you near a tv no well elvis is dead and i just thought well this is just the most unbelievable occurrence in the world i mean not only 
is it incredibly sad, you know, so on. But I mean, in, in actual practical sense, I had sent this guy so many songs to an address that everyone had and rarely ever heard back from. But literally the last new song he ever recorded in his life is Way Down. And it happens to have been number one on the day that he died. That's just too crazy, you know, because I really did go back to that seventh grade ride to the movies with my little girlfriend in my mom's car when she was driving us. We were whatever, 14. And this incredible life change had occurred when I heard his singing Heartbreak Hotel. And then the idea that in any way our lives or careers or whatever would be lined up in any way. And then just the idea that he had learned the song by listening to me sing it was just so absolutely unbelievable. I never met him. I didn't know him. I didn't, you know. So anyway, the most famous singer who ever sang in the world recorded my song. That just seemed impossible. But it had happened. And it was a feeling that was so transcendent and so unbuyable. I mean, you know, if I had gone into a business and made tons of money or something, I couldn't possibly have bought this feeling that I had of this boyhood idol having recorded my song. I mean, I took his first album to my seventh grade music class. It had four pictures of him on the back. I don't know if you ever saw that album. It's four, like a quad thing of just this, you know, every kid in the school, you know, boys, girls, whatever. He is definitely the coolest guy who has ever lived. And we all just went ape shit for him, you know? You know, the fact now, even, and I, I wrote this in my book uh, this morning with the lead sheet where it says Elvis Presley and then over to one side and Lang Martin Jr. And I thought, that's just impossible. I mean, you how does that happen, you know? But sometimes things do. So they didn't have a number one party. No, <laughs> no, nobody had number one parties. No. Back then. No. But in the aftermath of Elvis passing away, was there any focus on the song? Oh, God, maybe, Doug. I don't know. I have no idea. I mean, you know, we had these little kids, and I mean, I didn't know who won the World Series. I didn't I didn't even know who had the number one pop records. or I didn't know anything. I was just absorbed in trying to stay alive and, and pitching my songs and writing songs, and I was obsessed with it. I mean, I, I was wrote songs on the weekends at night when everybody was asleep and let alone all day. And I never wanted to be back in a fish taco place or in on writing ads, which I had done before that on Madison Avenue. I mean, I had a good job for a wonderful company and people. I, I love the guy who ran my ad agency, but it, it just was not for me. And I just, the idea of ever being back there again was just so abhorrent that I was I was literally obsessed with, you know, just what can I do to ensure that I will never, ever be in that spot again, so. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.